0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. This has been a great series. Uh, we started uh, with a seven week series on the makings and we looked at the first three chapters uh, and seven weeks is really just scratching the surface. I said if we had to go back and do it all over again, the book of Ephesians would have been like eight months long and some of the sermons, like last week's sermon, could have really been four or five weeks. Um, and, and, and and I get that and, and I, I'm hoping that someday we'll get to circle back around and dig in, maybe just a little bit Deeper, But we've looked at, in the first three chapters, all that Christ has accomplished for us. What has he secured for us in laying his life down and picking it back up and triumphing over the grave and sending us the Holy Spirit? What is that mean? And we looked at how we are adopted. We looked at how we are blameless, how we are righteous, how we are saints. Remember the first week was uh, the idea that saints aren't people that are enshrined. Saints are people that uh, are, are believers. And so all of us were saints. And when Paul was writing to the saints, we were included not because of our work not because we were incredibly great people and we had uh, accomplished some incredibly great task or we've been enshrined or uh, celebrated as saints as our understanding of our cultural understanding of saints is but because of the work of Jesus and so it was, a, it was an amazing kickoff we are loved we are accepted and then we looked at how we are united in Christ. Remember, that was a main theme all throughout the book of Ephesians. That language in Christ was uh, used. And so we looked at that. We've also looked at the ways that who we are in Christ affects the things that we do, right? Our identity in Christ affects our, our activity. Our belief changes our behavior. And those were the marks. What does it mean? What does it look like? How does it practically work itself out for us to walk in, who Christ says we are. And that was, uh, it's hard to to pick out which was my favorite. I'm a super practical guy. And so the marks was really fun to talk about, but I'm also amazed at the goodness of God and the grace of God and bringing me to himself and breaking down the walls of hostility that separate us from other people that belong to God. And so I, I, I don't necessarily have a favorite, but it's been great to work through both sides of them. During the series in Mark, we uh, took the fact that we were united, that Christ has broken down the walls of hostility and that the enemy has used to separate and destroy us, but we've also not just uh, understood the theology behind that, we've understood uh, our response to that. We've been given good instruction on how Christ saved us, how Christ changed us and how that changes how we interact with one another inside of his family, this new family that he's formed, the church, but also, even more specifically, what does it look like to live out this new identity that Christ has given us inside of our homes as a husband or as a wife, inside of our homes as a parent or as a child, and inside of our workplaces as a worker, uh, 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 an employee or an employee. Right, And so it was extremely practical. And so Paul's writing in an extremely packed way was, uh, it was extremely endearing to my heart and my soul because it's a lot of the ways that my brain functions. We learned even last week that in conflict and spiritual warfare, when our enemy, even when it seems as if our enemy is winning the battles of our heart, of our mind, and of our soul, that Christ has secured us our victory, and so we're fighting an enemy that's already been defeated, so he has no power over us. And so uh, the only thing he can try to do is deceive us, and when he tries to deceive us, we start believing things that aren't true about ourselves, uh, true about each other, and aren't true about Jesus and what he's come to do. And so uh, uh, that's, that's a great reminder. But now, this week, we've come to the end of this letter We've looked at six chapters worth of of just great stuff, good theology to expand our minds, good practicality to change our lives, and now we come to the end. What we'll read today is Paul's benediction to the Ephesians people. That should be a common uh, language for you to understand, or perhaps you've, you've come and you've heard it talked about and you've never understood what is a benediction. Benediction is basically just like a sign off. It's a blessing or a prayer for the road. It's something he uh, wants to encourage you with before he, uh, before he closes down his writing. And so each week we end our gathering with a benediction. Most of Paul's writings, he begins with a greeting and closes uh, with a benediction. This one's unique because he starts with almost the same thing that he ends with. Remember it was early on, the first week, grace and peace to the saints who are at Ephesus. And we'll look today that grace and peace is a huge part of the way that he wants us to close. So he bookmarks uh, what is most important um, uh, about this book in his benediction. These are his last words, right? And so when we think about last Words. These are his last words that he'll write to the Ephesian people. He'll, he'll never have the opportunity to return to the Ephesian people because he'll be imprisoned until his death. Um, but he spent almost two years. Remember, that's significant because he didn't spend that much time at any other other churches that were planted. He spent a lot of time in Ephesians. That time was riddled uh, with a lot of conflict, with imprisonment, with a lot of uh, battles. There was riots that started in the city over the selling of statues, remember, and how Paul was preaching that their worship of statues was wrong and they needed to repent and turn to Jesus and how uh, the people that made their profit on making these statues tried to run him out of the city, right? And so it was intense conflict and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit, but he's closing, these are the last words that he'll say and they're important, right? We understand the importance of last words as we think about the last words of a loved one. And maybe we, we love deeply and we uh, watch them slip out of this life into the next. And what they said in those moments, we hang on. And they bring us encouragement. Like some people have recorded last words, right? I've got stories uh, that my grandpa would read at Christmas and nearing the end of his life, the last Christmas we were guaranteed with him, they have recordings of him reading that same story that we grew up listening to him read. Like they're important to us, right? They, they bring uh, uh, reminders of joy and time spent and encouragement, right? Last words are important. Sometimes that gets translated into tattoos. A last letter or something I've seen have written down on somebody's arm or a signature or something like that. There's something important about these last words, right? When we think about the last words in the context of Jesus's life, man, how amazingly important were Christ's last words as he hung on a cross and declared what? It is finished. Right, and the implications of that are amazing and encouraging, and the fact is that we have the reality of hope and hopeful living all these years later because it is finished, right? There's an importance of last words, and so let's look this morning at what Paul's last words, at least by way of this letter, we don't know if maybe he sent another uh, a messenger to speak other things, but at least what we know about Paul's last words are recorded right here to the Ephesian people and then to us, because remember, Paul's letter, what is unique about the Ephesian letter is it wasn't just written to a singular church like some of the other ones were. It was a circular letter meant to be read as uh, churches in Ephesians had multiplied disciples and multiplied leaders and started other churches, so now there was multitude of churches in and around this whole area, and that was who Paul was writing this letter to, and that's significant for us. Because when we read this, it's like to the church as a a whole. And he doesn't really get very specific with the details of the Ephesians church. In fact, this is the only letter he's written where it's like this. And at the end, we get one name and that's it, right? We know that the Ephesian church is where Timothy eventually pastored and Paul's ministry to Timothy was an amazing ministry. He was a strong mentor uh, to him. And so there's a lot of great things about the church of Ephesians, but he wrote specifically to uh, the, the the church is in and around the area. So let's read Ephesians chapter number six, verse 21 uh, through 24, and we'll um, just take some time to understand what it is that Paul is saying is like these last words that he's leaving with the Ephesian people. All right, verse 21, he says, "'So that <clears throat> you also may know how I am "'and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 23, peace be to you brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love in This is the word of the Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to understand the truths of your word. I pray that we'd be encouraged by the gospel message contained within. We ask these things for your glory and for our joy, amen. First thing I'd like for us to see in the first two verses of this text is community as a result of conflict. Community as a result of conflict conflict, all right? And so what we want to see here is that Paul, again, as I reminded you before, is writing this uh, letter from a prison cell, right? He had spent two years ministering to the people in and around Ephesus, and his time was marked, like we've already said, by intense spiritual opposition as well as tremendous fruit growing from the roots of the gospel, and we see that. We see that all throughout the New Testament where, where the, 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 the circumstances were the darkest for God's people, the uh, light that shone in that darkness was the brightest and then any other time. And so when we're taking and experiencing and undergoing difficult circumstances that rattle our brain, rattle our heart, God uses those moments to declare his gospel in ways that like good, easy living just doesn't accomplish. And so we see that here. The ministry of Paul and the ministry of the Ephesian church was uh, growing tremendously as a result of the gospel work during these difficult times. Churches were started. Churches were strengthened. Leaders were developed. And uh, tons of sinful people that were uh, dead in the darkness of their sin were brought to life and redeemed by Jesus. This partnership in the ministry between Paul and the Ephesians had grown uh, to a tremendous camaraderie, right? There was an endearing love that Paul had for the people that he endured tremendous opposition and challenge with. There was a community of uh, gospel life that was built out of the conflict that they had undergone together. And we learn about another man in this text, Tychicus who Paul is sending to carry this letter to the saints in and around Ephesus. Many B- uh, Bible scholars believe that Paul wrote the Ephesians letter right at the same time that he wrote the uh, letter to the people of Colossae, the book of Colossians. And Tychicus is named as the messenger that both took Ephesians and Colossae. They think one right after the other. He went and visited one of them, dropped off the letter that we had spent the last 20 weeks discovering the contents in, gave a word of encouragement for the state of Paul and his ministry from a prison cell at Rome and does what? He comes to encourage the people. Why would Paul telling them how he's doing encourage them? Because they had built a deep love for one another that was rooted and grown out of camaraderie during the spiritual warfare that they had undergone at Ephesians, right? That's important. It's important for us to understand. Tychicus was Paul's right-hand man during this season of conflict and imprisonment. He sends them to carry this letter to the saints in and around Ephesus. He brings an update of Paul's well-being and as well as a means of encouragement for the Ephesian people. Even in Paul's inability to minister to them directly, he uses the ministry of the word and the ministry of partnership to uh, encourage and minister to those churches in and around Ephesus. This is endearing and encouraging to me that even in all of Paul's success as a minister of the gospel Paul desired partnership in his work and had developed a deep love for the people he was ministering with and the people he was ministering to right i think the 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 i think it's a chinese proverb but it says if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together and Paul really understood the meaning of that. Is, is ministry alone more efficient? Yes, but ministry together builds kingdoms and builds churches and builds God's kingdom and accomplishes change in the city and Paul understood that. And so partnership was extremely important to him. He wasn't a rogue Christian that was trying to do it alone, he valued the Ephesian people, the work of Tychicus and the others that he had spent so much time with. So much, so that even during the most difficult of circumstances, he has a strong sense of community with the people of God and a strong sense of partnership with his fellow ministers of the gospel, right? This is a prominent theme throughout the Christian life. Paul uh, has already taught us much in Ephesians about how we are a united people, not united by our, our likes and our differences, the things that we enjoy, the things that we don't enjoy. We're not united by those trivial and temporary things. We're united by something eternal, the finished work of Jesus dying on a cross. So much so that my, uh, we have more in common with our fellow believers than Uh, The people that live across the street that don't know Jesus, whose life looks identical to ours. Kids go to the same school. We work at the same jobs. They don't know Jesus. What unites us is infinitely more important than what uh, is different about us. And as a united people, we fight a common enemy. And as we fight this common enemy, doing it together becomes a means of God's grace that encourages us and equips us and empowers us to stand firm against our common enemy. Remember, we, we talked a lot about this last week, not nearly as much as I wanted to. And you know, it was a really long service last week. And I could have, uh, even though it was 58 minutes that I preached, I could have preached like four or five hours, no problem with just the notes that I had, right? Because there is an enemy that's powerful and strong and all the lies he tell us. We barely even scratched the surface. And so if we're going to fight this battle, if we're going to uh, engage in this warfare, we have to do it Together, because when we're separated and we're isolated from God's people, we're extremely vulnerable to the attack and the lies and the, the movements of the enemy. First Peter chapter number five, verse eight through nine says this. It says, be sober-minded, just means be alert, be watchful. Your adversary The devil prowls around like a warring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Man, I love that word brotherhood. Uh, Not because I was... Uh, part of a, an international brotherhood of electrical workers where I felt a strong sense of camaraderie with my fellow uh, union brothers, although that might play into it a little bit. Um, but, but brotherhood, just I, just I just desire brotherhood. Paul did too, and I think there's something beautiful about brotherhood. We'll talk later uh, by way of an example of military men and the way that they interact with each other. There's just something valuable about that. And so our gospel conviction this morning for this portion of our text says this. The grace of God turns dire circumstances into the defining context for dependent community. All right, I'm gonna explain what I mean by that. The grace of God turns dire circumstances into the defining context for dependent community. Right? What do I mean by that? My prayer from the very beginning would be that we would be a church rooted deep in community with one another. That God would also show us favor with the other ministries of the gospel around and in our part of the city. And when I prayed for that, and when I pray for that, what am I essentially praying for? A lot of times that means difficult circumstances that we can lock arms and endure together, right? So when I say, God, build us deeply rooted in community, that means I'm gonna go through some difficult things with the people that God is putting me deep in community with. If I'm gonna have an impact on our community, we're gonna endure spiritual opposition. But as we do this together, we become stronger, and our difficulty becomes our defined context in which gospel community that is dependent on Jesus and dependent on one another blossoms. Right, it's the fertile soil for camaraderie. It's the fertile soil for partnership. The more difficulty we endure together, the tighter, the, the tighter bond that we are gonna have. Like, we understand that. We, we see this in the context of marriage. We see this in the context of parenting. We see this in the context of working. Like, life, in, in a lot of ways, just happens that way, right? Spiritual or not spiritual. We understand that the work of the gospel carries with it a huge weight. And as the gospel is advanced, enemies are being overcome, lies are being revealed, truth is being placed where lies were once believed, and and it is a hard work that is going to encounter much opposition. And we need one another to see the kingdom of God advanced in our own hearts, and in our neighborhoods. The work of the ministry can and should unite our hearts together. We have been united in Christ. So what is uniting us is so much stronger than anything that already could divide us. And we've saw this and we've seen this as a primary theme throughout the book of Ephesians, right? So there's nothing new. We're we're bringing it down to a closing statement about the reality of all that Paul's already taught us. Amidst even the darkest of circumstances, while enduring the most difficult and hostile conflict, as we press into Christ when deep in trust and dependence on him and we press into each other with deep in trust and dependence on each other our hearts become knit together in ways that easy and ideal circumstances can not do right you cannot do and we've experienced that in our marriage a lot uh, we, we, many of you know our story, and many of you know that we lived in, in Dallas, Texas, prior to moving back to Cincinnati, which is my hometown where I lived here, uh, almost all of my life. And that season of our life was, was dark, and it was challenging, and uh, uh, there was a lot of things I didn't understand. There was a lot of, uh, of spiritual opposition that was being uh, leveraged on us. But Timmy and I came out of what felt very much like a a refiner's fire in leaving and moving back. Stronger, more love, more affection, deeper trust, and having endured the worst circumstances of our life. Right, I think that's a, a biblical theme. And because of Christ's work, in redeeming us, and uniting us together as his church, we must grow in our love for one another. Paul speaks of Tychicus as his beloved brother. His beloved brother. Man, that word is so meaningful. So meaningful, rooted out of this conflict, this community that has blossomed between the, the two of them. So the questions this morning are this. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? God has united us, God has brought us together, God has put you around people. Is there a deeper love growing for them than what once existed? Do you prefer your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Do you run to the church for retreat during your most difficult circumstances or do you run from the church in rejection of your brothers and sisters for whatever reason? Most of the time, fear of being either found out for who you really are or fear of being open and vulnerable enough to build that relationship with God's people, right? Enduring difficulty, enduring difficulty together builds camaraderie. Said before, I love being around a group of old men who served in the military together. It doesn't matter the branch, now they, it matters to them, right? Because I've had opportunities where um, breakfast or coffee like put me in a table next to a group of six or seven guys eating at Frisch's or one of the coffee shops or whatever. And uh, you can tell they regularly get together and they give each other a hard time about this one being in the army and this one being in the Marines and that one being in the Navy or whatever. But, man, to hear them talk and in a way that only they can. They can say things in a jest that, man, I would, I would be offended if they said it to me or it would be offensive if I would say it to them. But their love for one another is amazing. And it's blossomed out of literally putting their life on the line for one another, right? So their life was dependent on the guy in the foxhole with them. Deep trust, deep affection, deep sense of knowing and being known is powerful. And like the the 30 or 40 or the 50 years later, the ones that are still alive get to come back and reminisce about those old times. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I think that's the heart of, of what, what Paul's getting here. There's, a, there's conflict, there's the spiritual opposition, there's this difficult circumstances that have been endured, and those difficult circumstances become the defining context in which dependent community takes place because when I need you, my heart grows in affection for you, right? And so that's, that's the parallel. Second thing I want us to see in this text of Paul's closing Last words. And there's only two things this morning. So we'll we'll finish up here with some practice immediately following this. Second thing I want us to see is the wealth as a result of Christ's work. Right? If unity and camaraderie and enduring difficulty and circumstances and fighting spiritual battles together was a theme of Ephesians, then certainly another major theme is that Christ has done everything for us, right? Christ has done everything for us. Gospel conviction this morning for this portion of our text says this. It's the spirit of God applies the work of God, making the peace of God and the love of God ours through faith by the grace of God. Of God. In verse 23 through 24, we we see the outcome of this. As as Paul says in uh, closing to the Ephesian people, peace be to you, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And so we see that Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and pursuit of us in his grace has given us everything. He has brought us peace with God and peace with one another. He has shown us love and then equipped us to love him and to love one another. All of this desire is not built out of our own pride and out of our own sinfulness. It's built out of the identity that was secured and was given to us in Christ and in Christ alone. Ephesians has taught us very clearly that uh, we deserve hell and punishment as a result of our sin. We deserve death and shame as a result of our disobedience. We deserve condemnation and judgment as a result of our unrighteousness. But God gives us grace, uniting us to Christ, who takes our condemnation and gives us freedom, who takes our shame and gives us joy, and who ultimately on his back took our death and gave us life, right? We weren't uh, bad Christians that just needed to be cleaned up. We weren't people that almost had it figured out and just needed a little bit of extra help. Paul made it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 we were dead in our sins, no hope, no life, just drinking in all the darkness, all the depravity that we possibly could. But this is the anthem of Ephesians. God exchanged all of the bad in us for all of the good in Christ. Remember Ephesians two, eight and nine. We are saved by grace through faith, and then Paul spent three chapters digging in deep so that we would understand that our identity is rooted in that and not in our earlier sinfulness, right? But what does the enemy do? The enemy comes and the enemy reminds us and accuses us of all of our wrongdoings prior to Christ. And Paul encourages us to stand in that identity to stand in who Christ has said and what Christ has done. And as soon as we try to add things to that or take away things from it, we become extremely vulnerable and susceptible to our enemy's lies. And so we start thinking that we can do things on our own. And so we live the Christian life in our own power, not Christ's power. And we try to grow to become better people in our own strength and not Christ's strength. Right, And so Paul knew this to be true about the Ephesian people. We know this to be true about ourselves. And so on the front end, he started with grace and peace, two things that we can't manufacture on our own but have been given to us in Jesus. Our own and our best efforts of trying to bring peace to our soul is always gonna be met with impossibility. We know that, right? But we still look for it in things that we know are not gonna satisfy our hearts. We look for them in uh, things of the mind, like pride and affection and attention and uh, worshipfulness, and we call people to, to celebrate our goodness. It's not our goodness, it's God's goodness in sending us his son. And so we daily need to be reminded of that. Paul spent three chapters digging in deep and then four, three chapters Uh, declaring how that works itself out in everyday life, reminded us on the front, reminded us all throughout the middle, and then right before he closes this letter, he graciously reminds us again. And so week in and week out, we wanna be mindful to express our salvation through God's grace, through faith. Leaves us to ask the question then, what then can we boast in? If everything, Everything uh, in our union with Jesus comes by God's grace and not our own effort. What then should we do, right? What should we do? I'm hearing you say, and I've heard Paul say, but like, what do I do in my life when I'm enduring difficult circumstances, when I don't know where to turn, when I don't know what's next, when I don't know what the answer is? I've got three very practical things that I think will be helpful for us, and then I wanna read an article that was extremely helpful for me, all right? Here's it. First thing is this. rest in the presence of Jesus. Rest in the presence of Jesus. I think some of us come to Jesus and we look to him and we look to the gospel as a fix all for all of our problems. All of our temporary circumstances can be fixed in Jesus. And we look to him, as, as we say, as a genie, that we're hopeful that he'll grant us our wishes or as a uh, 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 counselor that will take away all of our pain, and he will, but Jesus doesn't promise to fix all of our problems or change all of our circumstances, right? But he does promise to be all that we need in the middle of those circumstances, problems, and challenge. So belief in the gospel and a call to live according to the gospel is not so that my life infinitely gets easier. It's so that I've got the presence of Jesus even in the midst of those circumstances to give me peace, to bring me comfort, to give me hope, right? And so we can get frustrated and we can start to believe the lies of the enemy when we look to Jesus as only our problem solver. He will solve our problems, but sometimes he's gonna do it in a way that seems drastically different than what we were anticipating, right? So we need to learn to just rest in the presence of Jesus. There are many things about tomorrow that you and I will never understand, but we know very clearly who holds tomorrow, and we know that he'll be present with us no matter what tomorrow might bring. So Paul leaves a word of greeting just about Jesus and this love and this peace and this grace that he's extended us. And so we must understand that it's in Christ, not our circumstances, that we have peace, that it's in Christ and not our difficulty, that we know we are loved and now can love in Christ. We have received grace. So we don't have to try to be perfect. We don't have to try to earn Christ's affection. Christ and laying down his life has given us all of his affection. Rest in his presence. When you don't understand what's going on, look to Jesus. Second thing is this, trust in the process of Jesus. Trust in the process of Jesus. Proverbs chapter number three, verse five through six says this, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. When we can't understand what God is doing or why God is doing what he's doing, we could trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. That nothing, absolutely nothing, falls through his sovereign plan. And I've learned, man, a lie of the enemy Number one in my life oftentimes is that my worry changes my outcome, right? That, that worrying about what is happening or what is going to happen or what uh, may happen or may not is really just a rob and a thief of my joy, and it's a waster of my time. Worry never changes anything. Worry does cause us to doubt the goodness and the grace of God. Truth be, there have been circumstances in my life that, that I could not find a reasonable explanation for. There's been circumstances and difficulty in my life where I could not satisfy my own understanding. And what's brought peace is knowing and trusting in not only God's presence through Jesus, but God's process through the work of his son. Trusting that he knows what he's doing. When my heart is heavy, God's in control. When I'm hurt, God's in control. When I don't understand what's happening, God is in control, and that is a peaceful reality, right? When we try to take control, when we try to seek understanding that maybe God isn't gonna extend to us, we grow frustrated, and it doesn't feel very peaceful at all, does it? We feel disconnected from Jesus, right? So trust in the process of Jesus and then work from the promises of Jesus. Work from the promises of Jesus. Here in our text, he started with peace, started with grace. Here in his closing, he adds love. First thing he says is peace to you brothers. This is the biblical understanding of the Hebrew word shalom, translated into Greek. It's a deep abiding peace that comes from the inside out. It's not circumstantial, it's not relational, meaning our circumstances can't bring about this peace, our relationships don't bring about this peace, but it is transformational peace because of the work of Jesus. It is a peace that declares when everything around me is chaos, when conflict is overwhelming, when the enemy seems to be winning and life is spiraling very quickly out of control. It's in those moments that this peace declares, oftentimes with frailty and tear-stained eyes, even though all this is happening and I don't know why, it is well with my soul because I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to me. Talks about love in these last two verses. I want us to understand that this love is a love that has been shown to us in Christ, and Christ's love for us now empowers us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to love Christ with a incorruptible love, an immortal love, an eternal love, a love that is so powerful that it saves our lives soul, and in response to that, it's a love that endures for our Savior, right? Love is so powerful. He's eternally saved us, and now that love compels us to a reciprocal love that's imperfect at times, that wanes and waxes, but it endures because Christ has endured. And this comes as a result of the salvation secured for us. This love is not conditional upon being lovable or being faithful because I'm often not lovable and I'm not faithful, right? And we experience that. This love is rooted in God's goodness and God's grace and not ours, right? And so we can keep going. All of this, as Paul so beautifully writes here in this last verse, is given to us in God's grace, given to us in God's grace. So I wanna close with this. Um, I've been, I have been the incredibly grateful recipient, oftentimes, of the ministry of uh, both pastor and Christian counselor, Paul David Tripp. All right? I've, learned, I've learned much about the practical reality and nature of God's grace so God's grace as a theological idea is made very practical where it moves and changes my heart and my life and stirs up affections for Jesus because of the ministry that God has given this man. And so uh, it's helped my parenting, it's helped my marriage relationship, it helps me as a shepherd to understand God's grace and how it practically plays out in its life and oftentimes it just ministers peace, comfort to my soul. So because of that, I wanted to share an article that I thought about summarizing, I thought about rewriting, uh, but but I just couldn't find the words like this guy has found the words. So I wanna share an article he wrote for desiringgod.com entitled Grace Here and Now. All right, and so I'm just gonna read it. I want you to listen to it. It's on the app if you wanna reflect back to it. Uh, and you're unable to keep up with, if you want to try to write it down, I think it can be helpful. I think, like I said, it, it's, it's been a ministering to my heart in ways that make the grace of God from an idea to a practical way of life. Starts the article like this Do you understand the majesty and practicality of the grace you have been given? If you don't, in subtle and not so subtle ways, you are looking to other things to get you through. You don't need to go out searching for hope and help because they are already yours in the resources of God that you have been given as God's child. Grace is the most transformational word in the Bible. The entire content of the Bible is a narrative of God's grace a story of undeserved redemption. By the transformational power of his grace, God unilaterally reaches his hands into the muck of the fallen world through the presence of his son and radically transforms his children from what we are as sinners into what we are becoming by his power, people who are Christ alike. The famous John Newton hymn uses the best word possible, maybe the only word big enough for that grace. It is amazing. So grace is a story and grace is a gift. It is God's character and it is your only hope. Grace is a transforming tool in a state of relationship. Grace is a beautiful theology and a wonderful invitation. Grace is a lifelong experience and a life-changing calling. Grace will turn your life upside down while giving you a rest you have never known. Grace will require you to face your unworthiness without ever making you feel unloved. Grace will make you finally acknowledge that you can't earn God's favor, and it will once and for all remove your fear of not measuring up to his standards. Grace will humble you with the fact that you are much less than you thought you were, even as it assures you that you can be far more than you had ever imagined. You can be sure that grace will put you in your place without ever putting you down. Grace will enable you to face shocking truths about yourself that you have hesitated to consider while freeing you from being self-consciously introspective. Grace will confront you with a profound weakness and at the same time bless you with newfound strength. Grace will tell you again and again what you aren't while welcoming you again and again to what you now can be. Grace will make you as uncomfortable as you have ever been while offering you a more lasting comfort than you have ever known before. Grace will work to drive you to the end of yourself while it invites you to fresh starts and new beginnings. Grace will dash your ill-founded hopes but never walk away and leave you hopeless. Grace will decimate your little kingdom of one as it introduces you to a much better king. Grace will expose you to the extent of your blindness as it gives you eyes to see what you so desperately need to see. Grace will make you sadder than you've ever been while it gives you greater cause for celebration than you have ever known. Grace enters your life in a moment and will occupy you for eternity. You simply cannot live a productive life in this broken world unless you have a practical grasp of the grace you have been given. Are you living out this amazing grace? Does it shape the way you respond to your personal struggles, the difficulty in your relationships and the difficulty in your work? Does your trust in this grace form how you live with your husband or your wife? Does it compel and compel and propel the way that you parent your children? Does it give comfort when friends have disappointed you? Does it give you rest when life is unpredictable and hard? Does it make you bold and give you courage in places where you would have once been timid? Does it make the idols that tempt you less attractive and less powerful? I say it certainly does. certainly does. Grace gives us the ability to live as God's children, which will ultimately bring us the joy and the satisfaction that our hearts so desperately need. God's grace should compel us to wake up every day and say, I don't know what I will face, but I do know this. I have been given amazing grace to face it right here and right now. Invite the band back up this morning. I hope this morning has been a reminder of all the things that Paul has taught us in this book, namely that peace and love that we get to experience comes as a result of his work and not our own, comes in his righteousness and not our own. And we should daily be the recipients and the reminders of that grace. I want to pray and then uh, we'll introduce a time of response. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. I pray that. We would feel the peace of the Father, the love of the Father you've extended to us in Jesus, that today would be another reminder. It wouldn't just stop today, but tomorrow would be another reminder, and the next day would be another reminder of your goodness and your grace. Amen.